You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I'm going to begin in, in, in chapter 15, and uh, I'm going to begin in verse 20. So uh, follow along with me. It'll be on the screen for you as well. So beginning in verse 20, we read, This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. Pause there for a second. Verses 21 through 62 are a lengthy description of Judah's inheritance. A bunch of words that are hard to describe, so we're going to skip ahead. to Verse 63, where you read this. Verse 63, but the Jebusites, don't miss this, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Okay, now jump into chapter 16. <clears throat> As you jump there, the first couple of verses, verses 1 through 3, are basically a broad description of Joseph's inheritance that really doesn't hold a lot of pertinent detail for us this morning. So pick it up in verse 4. Here's what we read. The people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim is as follows, dot, 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 and verses 5 through 9 are a description of that inheritance uh, for Ephraim, and if you pick it up again in verse 10, you read that they, meaning Ephraim, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have made, been made to do forced labor, okay, so that's the end of Chapter 16, look at chapter 17, begin in verse 1. We're going to read down through uh, roughly verse 6. Uh, beginning in verse 1 says this, Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Maker, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemitah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now that's uh, important for us to just kind of highlight the male descendants, right? Um, now look at verse 3. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Maker, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. Picking up the contrast here. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions of besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Uh, now, verses 7 through 11 then, uh, we're going to kind of jump over those. They are a description, once again, of Manasseh's inheritance. Um, and we're going to pick it up again um, in verse 12. Uh, says this, the people of Manasseh, could not take possession of those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to do forced labor, but did not utterly just drive them out. 
Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. And the people of Joshua said, The hill country is not enough for us. All the Canaanites who dwell on the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Okay, so now jump into chapter 18. We're just going to dive right into verse 1. Where we read that the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long Will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. Now verses uh, 5 through 9, we're going to kind of jump over that, but basically those verses 5 through 9... Uh, are basically the rest of Joshua's instructions to the survey team. And then you get some details about Judah and Joseph and the Levites, and then uh, the two and a half tribes across the river. Uh, there are details that are interesting. We just don't have time to cover it today, um, and not majorly significant to the major themes of what's happening in this story. So we're going to jump to verse 10, where we read that Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land of the people of Israel to each his portion. And then verses 11 through 27 of chapter 18 are a summary of Benjamin's inheritance um, there. So jump into chapter 19, and what you're going to see there is verses 1 through 39 are a, a summary of the inheritance that was given to the tribes of Simeon and Zebulun and Issachar and Asher and Naphtali. And again, those summaries, they're all very similar. Lots of names of cities that are hard to pronounce. Um, and if you want to do a geographical study on those cities, it's kind of interesting. But again, for the sake of preaching, um, not real significant for us. So pick it up again in verse 40. Verse 40, we read that the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans. And again, verse 41 through 46, description of Dan's inheritance. Pick it up again in verse 47. When the territory... Of the people of Dan, and this is interesting, okay, this is significant. When the, when the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, catch that, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem. And after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. Now look at verse 49. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. 
By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. So this uh, is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Um, Would you uh, pray for me as I pray for you? Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we do ask that you would come and that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, and that you would uh, do a work inside of us through the study and the preaching of your word. Um, Lord, we trust that every piece of your word is helpful and good for us. And so we ask that you would help our hearts to be receptive. (coughs) We ask that the spirit, uh, that your spirit would come and do a work of transformation and healing and strengthening uh, deep inside of us. We pray, God, that you would protect our time together. Give us ears to hear from you and eyes to see um, what you're about. And, uh, yeah, God, we love you. And we just ask, God, that you would, uh, yeah, that you would just be with us and be glorified. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And at uh, <clears throat> first glance, when you... When you look at uh, all of these, all of this text, um, um, you might be asking, like, what in the ever-living heck did we just read? Um, there's a lot there, right? Um, and you might feel a little bit overwhelmed, you might feel a little bit confused after just kind of jumping around, reading those select portions of those chapters. And so what I want to do is take a, a few minutes, kind of explain what's going on, explain where they're where we're headed, and you can you can kind of look on the screens uh, in front of you. And what I've done is I've I've tried to um, I've tried to kind of organize what we've just looked at under three different headings. Right, um, kind of the first thing that we see is the tribe of Judah in chapter fifteen, um, from verses twenty through sixty three, uh, and and then we see the tribe of Joseph in, or you could say the house of Joseph is probably a more appropriate way of saying it. In chapter 16, verses 1, and then all the way through 17, verse 18, right? And then third chunk of text, third heading to be thinking about is the surveyors and the seven tribes in, sorry, in, in, in verse 1 of 18, all the way through the end of chapter 19, okay? So those are kind of the three big headings I want to work under for a few minutes as we kind of wrap our minds around what's going on in the text, okay? Because that's kind of the, the first place we should start is what's actually happening in this story. So begin number one uh, with the tribe of Judah, okay? Chapter 15, verses 20 through 63. Uh, in, in these verses, um, what we have is basically a description of the cities that Judah inherited in the land that was given to them, okay? This is important to think through. Um, and then at the very end of that description, what you have is a, a closing statement in verse 63. It's a closing statement about Judah's epic failure. That's what we have. It's a statement about Judah's epic failure to drive the Jebusites out of their land. Okay. Now this, uh, this failure to drive out the Jebusites, to drive out their enemies, it's a common theme throughout this entire portion of Joshua. Uh, we need to be thinking uh, all throughout this 
um, need to be thinking about the size of Israel's inheritance. Um, think about the massive size of what God is giving to them. And then, and then I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would, at the same time as we make our way through this, that he would somehow in your heart, in your mind, by his own strength and power and his own sovereignty, that he would show you the massive size of the inheritance that you have in the work of Christ at the cross in the empty tomb. That, that those two would begin to intersect as you think about this and as we read this. So think about the size of Israel's inheritance. Think about their failure to completely possess it. Think about that. Um, what we need to recognize here um, is the massive size of God's generosity towards Israel. What we need to think about uh, their failure to completely obey Him in response to His generous grace. Like, you think about that in your own life for a minute, okay? When you think about that, when you think about how God has given us so much, that His love is overflowing, that His grace is um, insurmountable, that, that you can't really measure these things. They're, they're so large. They're so big, right? Um, in, in the face of that, you think about how your own disobedience and your, how your own rebellion um, seems kind of silly, doesn't it? Right? When, when you look at how massive God's love is and His, His grace is and His generosity and His faithfulness towards us. Um, look, look at the tribe of Joseph, Joseph, the, the house of Joseph maybe, again, is a better way of saying it. Um, verse 1 of chapter 16, all the way through the end of, uh, or through the end of verse 18 of 17. Uh, when you think about the, 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 the house of Joseph, when you, when you look at what we have here, what we have is a description of the land, right? And then we also have a description of the cities of the tribe of the tribes, because there's two tribes within the house of Joseph, right? It's Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, this inheritance that the whole house of Joseph gets, it's split between those two tribes. <clears throat> now, as you look at this entire section of um, the text, and it should be on the next slide in front of you, maybe even two slides further. Um, yeah, there you go. As you look at um, this section of the house of Joseph, there's kind of four, um, I think, important features of this section. Um, you've got Ephraim's inheritance. Uh, you've got Manasseh's uh, granddaughters. They're really great, great, great granddaughters, right? Um, uh, you've got Manasseh's inheritance, and then you've got uh, the house of Joseph asking for more. That's kind of the way this section rolls through. So begin for a minute with Ephraim's inheritance and, and think about this with me. Uh, Ephraim um, basically receives their inheritance. But what happens? Well, they fail to drive the Canaanites out of their land. Again, common theme all throughout this, right? Um, just like Judah, just like many of the other tribes before them, Ephraim completely fails to follow through in what I would call faith-filled obedience. And when I talk about faith-filled obedience, I talk about our hearts being full of faith in response to what we've seen God do on our behalf, right? Um, that's where faith comes from. God, God puts that in your heart and inside. It's not something that you create. It's not something that you and I muster up. It's not like we go, got to put my boots of faith on and pull them up. Faith is something that happens inside of our hearts simply because we are face-to-face -face with the miraculous things, the massive things that God is doing for us. And so when I talk about faith-filled obedience, I'm talking about seeing the hand of God at work in our lives and then responding in faith 
to that work of God. And what Ephraim fails to do is they fail to follow through in faith-filled obedience to God's commands. Talk about this more later, but it's just, again, good to note Ephraim's failure in light of the sheer weight of, of God's gracious and faithful provision here. A second thing is Manasseh's five great, great, great granddaughters. Um, Manasseh's five great, great, great granddaughters. What do they do? They approach the leaders of their tribe, right? And they ask for, and then they subsequently uh, receive their portion among the people of Manasseh, right? So um, in, in that day and age, it, it would be highly, um, not inappropriate, I'm not, it's not the word I'm looking for, but it would it'd almost be, it would be something you wouldn't see happening often. It would be a group of ladies coming to the leaders and asking for something. Not bad, not good, it, more of a cultural thing. And what I think the author of Joshua is doing is just setting up kind of a contrast for us between what the ladies do and what the men do, okay? That's kind of what I see here, um, and I think it's, it's significant because I, I would probably argue that these five gals, these great, great, great granddaughters, I mean, they, they make the men of Joseph look like a bunch of whiny wimps here in a few moments. Um, I'm pretty sure if I understand the way this is happening, here in a few minutes, you're going to get the men of the house of Joseph from both tribes. They're going to come to Joshua, and they're going to do what? They're going to complain about the amount of the inheritance that they have. They're going to ask for more, right? But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get there, so you got the five great-granddaughters come, and they, they ask for their inheritance. like, hey, God promised this to us. We should receive this, to, we should receive this so please give it to us. Um, and so, uh, so then God... Uh, Joshua gives that to them. Joshua is faithful to what God has promised. And so then after that episode, what do you see? You see Manasseh's inheritance. Kind of the next thing uh, you see as you're working your way through the narrative. Um, you see Manasseh receiving their inheritance. And what happens with them? What does Manasseh do? Maybe they're better than Ephraim, right? No, not the case. Uh, what we see with Manasseh is that just like their Ephraimite brothers, what do they do? They fail to drive out the remaining Canaanites from the land. You see this in verses 12 to 13 of chapter 17. So what's happening here? Once again, what's happening is God's people are being content with taking the gift of God's fulfilled promises and just taking from Him and not then turning around and reinvesting their obedience to God's commands. That's what's taking place. They're like, hey, God, thanks for the gift. I don't have to do what you tell me to. It's basically what's happening. Um, we know what this is like if we deal with young children, right? Um, especially when they're really young when they're babies, when they're, when they're really little babies, and you give them a little bit, and then they just cry for more, right? And it's like, hey, you've had enough. Um, you kind of see this taking place. God's people content with taking what God is giving without then turning around in faith-filled obedience in response. They're taking advantage of God's generosity. That's what they're doing. Taking advantage of His generosity and they're living in disobedience while doing it. Um, and honestly, if you think about the meaning of the word grace, it's, it's unmerited favor. Um, it's the idea Grace is the idea that we all take advantage of God. All of us have been recipients of God's grace. None of us have earned that grace. You can't earn it, right? It's a free gift. 
And no matter how perfect you and I become this side of heaven, we're always going to be guilty at some level of taking advantage of God. Therefore, we need His generous grace. Thank God that His grace never runs out, right? Thank God for that. <coughs> at the end of the day, this is, um, this is what you see in this section of text. Just think for a minute, how often... Um, have you taken advantage of God's generosity recently? Just some specific places in your life. You might pause and you might stop and write that down. It might be somewhere in your marriage or in your parenting of your children or in your friendship with someone or, or in your time management or in your money management. It could be a whole host of areas practically in our lives where we take advantage of God's generosity towards us where God has given us grace and given us mercy, and we've become lazy and, and disobedient, and we've thumbed up our noses at Him. So um, good for us to pause for a moment and do that. Where have you been living in disobedience recently, especially in light of His massive grace to you? last thing we see in this section is the house of Joseph asking for more, which is a crazy thing to think about, right? If you're standing outside this text like we are today, and we're not living it, like when you read it, it's almost infuriating, isn't it? I mean, it can be almost infuriating to realize that the house of Joseph has been taking advantage of God's generosity, his grace, his mercy, his provision, his faithfulness. And they've been doing that while living in disobedience to him by not driving out their enemies. They had the audacity, think about it, the audacity in these moments to come and ask for more. Kind of like, again, if you've ever disciplined a child and you tell the child, hey, you can't have any more and you've had enough and you don't get any more time on your tablet or whatever it is, right? And they come back to you five minutes later and they're like, can I have more? And it's like, did you do your chores? No, you didn't. Well, then why am I going to give you more? Right? That's our answer because we're trying to raise kids well and hold them accountable. They have the audacity to come back and ask for more. And I think, again, this is where the sisters from a few minutes ago kind of make the rest of the tribe, especially the men in the tribe, look really bad because my sense is it's the men in the tribe that are leading this charge back to the leaders. That would typically be the way it would go anyway. So you've got men chosen from both tribes within the house of Joseph, and they come to some of the other leaders, to Joshua and to, to the priests, and they're like, hey, we want more. It's a crazy picture of selfishness when you think about it. And they can't see past the tip of their own noses um, when you think about it. They both approach Joshua. They complain about the size of their combined inheritance. They ask for more. Now, I personally think that their complaint is motivated by the presence of the Canaanites. That they failed to drive out. Okay? They're the ones that failed to do it. To be obedient. Um, and it wasn't like they didn't still have God on their side. Right? Well, they, they have big chariots of iron. Whoop-de-doo, you just watched walls fall down, right? Like, hello, what is going on here? Well, they, they come and they, they ask for more. I think it's motivated by the fact that they failed. I don't think it's about actually wanting more. I think it's about not wanting to be obedient with what they had been given. That's what I think. Not wanting to be obedient with what they had been given. When you think about this, um, isn't that how it often goes for us? God's given you and me um, so many beautiful things, whether that's an awesome spouse or great kids or 
an awesome gospel community and a church family or a good job or a great education, whatever it may be that God's given us, and we make mistakes with it. We, we fail at those things. We fail to be responsible at times, and sometimes we work hard to be responsible, and other times um, we try to shift the attention in some other direction, right? Um, we find some new pursuit to kind of run after. Instead of going back to ground zero, start at square one with a humble recognition of God's gracious, generous faithfulness on our part. So you just think about that. I think that's kind of what taking, what's taking place here. Now, now the cool thing in the story is Joshua. Um, Joshua definitely emerges all the way throughout this book as the hero of the book, right? Um, and he doesn't even budge. He just like draws a line in the sand when you read the story. Um, in the face of these two tribes, the, the house of Joseph, in the face of their manipulation, he just doesn't budge. He holds them accountable for their failure. He forces them to own their next steps in taking possession of their inheritance, which they obviously fail at epically. Because um, if you look at verses 14 through 18 of chapter 17, you see it. Now, honestly, if you, <coughs> if you could uh, see the map of this, and I would just maybe encourage you guys to go take a look at the map sometime. If you look at the map of both Ephraim and Manasseh's portion of the land, it's massive. It's massive compared to all the other tribes. It's huge. The large chunk of the entire land goes to the house of Joseph. It's mind-boggling to see that and to simultaneously witness their manipulation and their disobedience. Um, that's good for us just to look into our own hearts and just think about how we miss the size of God's grace in our lives and try to manipulate God even more. Third chunk of text as we break and finish breaking this down, uh, you've got the surveyors and the seven tribes, right? This is chapter 18, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 19. Um, in these verses, what you have is you have a description of the survey team that Joshua sends out, right? You've got a survey team that Joshua sends out, and he sends them out to survey the remaining portion of the land. And then right after that, uh, you, get a, uh, you get a description of the distribution of the land and the cities that are given to the remaining seven tribes of Israel. So pause for just a minute on the surveyors and how they're sent. When you, when you think about those surveyors um, in these verses, what's happening is Joshua's sending 21, it's a 21-man survey team. That's what it is, okay? Because it's three men from each of the seven tribes that he sends out. And he sends them out to survey the rest of the land, make a book, make a map, describe the divisions of the land so I can then d distribute the, this inheritance in an orderly way by casting lots, which is just a kind of a shorthand way of saying we're going to roll some dice and we're going to pray and trust God that he's going to be sovereign over the rolling of the dice. And uh, wherever the dice land, that's going to tell us which um, tribe is going to go where. It's basically the way it's going to go. Um, and so, uh, so we see that taking place. Um, one, uh, there is an interesting feature in the midst of this. When you're thinking about these surveyors getting sent um, and the things that Joshua says, um, the interesting feature here uh, is basically just you got to see that, that Judah, uh, Judah is designated kind of in the north uh, part of the promised land, okay? Um, and, and then, I'm sorry, yeah, Judah, he's designated in the north, their tribe. 
and then, and then Joshua is designated in the south. Okay, You might be saying, who gives a rip why one tribe is in the north and one tribe is in the south? This, this is significant. Why? Because down the road, those two tribes are going to lead basically an all-out civil war in the midst of the nation of Israel in the promised land. And you're going to get the northern tribes are going to be uh, going to war with the southern tribes. And it's going to absolutely decimate Israel forever. I mean, what you see today happening in the Middle East is still the outcome of what happens here. So that is very interesting to notice that there is, you've got Judah and you've got the house of Joseph designated in those areas. The southern and the northern rise up against each other. What's the bottom line here? The bottom line is this disobedience has consequences. At the end of the day, disobedience has consequences. It's not a popular topic in our culture today where it's like gloss things over, pretend like that didn't happen, and who am I to tell you, and yada, 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 right? These are hard topics to broach in the culture that we live in, but I would just say not just the culture we live in, but in our very own hearts. That's really the issue uh, the issue is never all these external things. The heart is always the heart of the issue. The heart is always the heart of the issue. So that's the bottom line here. There are ripple effects for generations that come out of this very one thing. So, um, you know, drive this home for us again. Just make some personal application like this. Like, you might be here this morning. You may be living in some of the consequences of the ripple effects of your own disobedience, Right? consequences in your life, your own disobedience that you wake up with every morning. Maybe it's somebody else's sin against you. It's one or the other. It's either the sin that you've committed or the sin that someone's committed against you. We're, we're both simultaneously victims and abusers, always. That's what sin is, right? Um, sin is just simply missing the mark. God has set a standard of perfection for you and I, and he said, hey, your lives are like an arrow, and you're to hit the bullseye, and the problem is because sin entered the world back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right, when they decide, you know what, God, everything you told us that we could have, not good enough. We want the one thing you told us we couldn't have. Disobedience entered into the world because of Adam and Eve's heart. So, now we live in the consequences of that, both of us, all of us, either our own sin or someone else's sin. Sin has consequences in this life and in the next. And, and most time it's those closest to us that pay the consequences, isn't it? I mean, it's always someone close to you that sins against you that you get hurt by. It's typically not somebody that you don't know. Not that that doesn't happen. Primarily, though, Pain in our lives comes from sin from others against us and our sin against others close to us. Relationships get destroyed this way, don't they? This is what happens in the relationship between God's people and God. And when that, when that vertical relationship gets marred by sin and it's not restored, it's fractured and it's broken, like a broken mirror. Now your image is broken and you can't see clearly and now your relationship horizontally with others is affected as well. Right? Our sin doesn't start between me and Dave or me and Abe. My sin starts between me and a perfect holy God. And it's the same story with Israel. Their sin began, is rooted in the heart issue between them and their Father in heaven that they did not trust, and then it made its way out across the nation. And we're seeing that still to this day. Now, if you, you survey your own life in the last few weeks, um, I. 
I would tend to think that just like me, you would find instances where you have sinned against someone or where someone sinned against you, right? <coughs> it's good for us to think about that. In this final section of text, the last thing that we see is the seven remaining tribes, right? Um, pretty basic, uh, seven remaining tribes of Israel, they get their inheritance. A tribe of Benjamin gets theirs, Simeon gets theirs. There is a small detail in there um, in regards to uh, the location, I think, of Simeon uh, in the midst of Judah due to Judah's size. It's not a really big deal. Study that on your own time. The tribe of Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, and Naphtali, they all receive their inheritance without any super big major details for us today. But the seventh tribe, uh, it's the tribe of Dan, um, when they receive their inheritance, there's an interesting detail in that portion of text where we learn that the people of Dan uh, eventually lose their land, okay? And they resettle in a place called Leshem. They don't even go back and try to get the land that God gave them. They just give up and walk away, and they go to a completely different land and take that instead. And my assumption is that Leshem was super-duper easy for them to take down, because the way that I understand the story of these tribes is that they would constantly take the easy route out, right? Constantly path of least resistance. Not the hard path, the narrow one of following God, but the easy path, the wide one that everybody else is going down because that's easier rather than going down the narrow one that is hard where your character gets shaped and built because you're relying on the power of God to get you through it. So that's, that's what makes it interesting about Dan, man. They didn't drive out their enemies, even though they got God to rely on, because they're lazy and they're disobedient. And you might be questioning me a little bit as you're reading this, because you don't see all these details and inferences that I'm making, right? I'm making an awful lot of inference about Israel's disobedience. And um, there are times in the way that our English rendering of the text says things like, they could not drive them out. And when we read that, what do we hear? Oh, man, their enemies were so bad, they just couldn't overcome them. Come here, little tribe, let me pat you on the back and make you feel better, right? It's not the picture that's taking place. It's an English translation of the words. If you do the study on what's taking place, what you're going to find is this was absolute rebellion. That's what this was. Um, and you might be asking, how do you know that, right? Is it just because you do more study than we do? No, not necessarily. Um, I, I think... Um, I think I want to deal with that in a minute because I, I think it's important for us to ask. So just hang that on a coat hook for a second. Um, as we're thinking about that, it's important for us to also ask now that we see all this, what, what, what's the, what difference does any of this make, right? How is any of this important to us today? Um, I want to point us to two different places as I try to explain that. The first place I'm going to point us to is the book of Judges. So we're going to go there in a minute. I want to make connection to all the inferences that you've heard me make about Joshua um, and all the tribes' disobedience, I want to show you in Scripture where this is proven true, number one. So that's important, the, the, the judge's connection. And then the second connection I want to make in conclusion here in the next five minutes, hopefully, um, is going to be the size of the promised land. I want to get back to that because I think that's a really important point. So first I want you to think about um, judges. Uh, the book of Judges... <clears throat> is the very next book in the Bible. It's right after Joshua. It just continues the, the historical, uh, chron chronological narrative of what's taking place with God's people, okay? If I were to skip forward to the end of Joshua, 
basically, the big overview, last thing you hear from Joshua, is something along these lines. Hey, me and my household, we've chosen to serve the Lord, obey the Lord, trust the Lord. All the rest of y'all fools need to figure out what you're going to do. Choose you this day whom you will serve, right? And then what do the people say? I think I remember preaching a message similar to this a while back, right? What do the people say? Oh, yeah, we love Jesus. We love God. We're, we're in it. And he's like, no, you don't. I heard you say it a thousand times, and I haven't seen you follow through. Your actions don't match your words, right? Uh, so I think three times this thing goes back and forth, and then Joshua's finally like, all right, fine. All right, you guys, you guys are telling me you're going to actually follow the Lord, and you're going to prove it by your actions. Here's this rock. See this rock? This, this rock is a testament against you. <laughs> Drops the rock. And from that point forward, the rock's been there to this day as a reminder, hey, you spoke with your mouth, your words. You said you were going to obey God. Then we get into Judges. So that, that's the tail end of Joshua. You get, into, you get into Judges, and what you find about Judges um, is it's a really sad story. It's just a sad story. It's a depressing story to read. You want to get depressed and need a counselor, go read Judges. Seriously, like, I'm pretty sure that's the way it is. It's a sad story. God's people failing over and over and over again as they do what is right in their own eyes. That's basically the, the thematic verse of the book of Judges. They, they basically abandon their commitment that they made at the end of Joshua to obey God. They abandon that completely. Um, they abandon the idea that we should follow God in faith-filled obedience. And they, they chase after doing what they think is right. I think this is right regardless of what God says I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's basically the theme of Judges. So then you get into chapter 1 of Judges, and you look throughout, the chap throughout chapter 1, and here's what you're going to find over and over and over again. Manasseh did not drive out their enemies. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. <coughs> Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites. Asher did not drive out the Canaanites. Naphtali does not drive out the Canaanites. The Amorites chased out the people of Dan like we just read. In fact, some of the first uh, chapter of Judges is an exact word-for-word -word rendering of things we've already read in Joshua. It's just that it crystallizes their disobedience over and over and over again. They did not do this. They chose not to do this, even though they were instructed to do this. So, while it may seem exciting for us to read Joshua and watch them getting into their promised land after how long? 40 years of walking around the wilderness, right? And what happens? They turn right around and go right back to their sinful ways. Missing the mark once again, just like all of us. What happens here is that Israel is, is taking the size of God's gracious provision towards them, and they're thumbing up their noses towards God. That's what they're doing. Look at Judges chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. It's on the screen in front of you. This is what God says to them after the summary of their not getting into the promise. And this is what he says. He says, I told you to make no covenant. What's covenant? An agreement. Make no agreement with your enemies. Break down their altars. In other words, destroy their spiritual influence. Two things he tells them. Don't make agreements with them. Number two, break down their spiritual influence and drive them out. And then he follows this in verses 2 through 3 of chapter 2 of Judges. He says, you have not obeyed my voice. You've not obeyed my voice. 
And he asked this question. I can hear God's heart breaking when he asked this question. He says, what is this that you have done? You ever stood in front of yourself and asked that question? What have I done? Or stand in front of someone that you love dearly and you're watching them run off the cliff of sin and you're like, what is this that you're doing? Why are you doing this? That's what God's saying. It's the picture of a father who loves his son or loves his daughter. I I get the picture of the prodigal son all over this. Not just that that's been a great theme passage this week for many reasons, I think for many of us, but when you think about the size of the inheritance here in a moment, and you think about the prodigal son coming to his dad and saying, I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. Give me what belongs to me. Give me what I got coming to me so I can go squander it. I think it overlays with this picture so well when God the Father comes and he says, what is this that you have done? And he moves on. He says, so now I say, I will not drive them, your, your enemies. I will not drive them out before you. I'm not going to take care of this for you. You got yourself in this. And you're going to have to deal with it. They shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And isn't that exactly what happens with Israel from that point forward? is their lives are consistently marked by the destructiveness of the sin that takes root inside of them. What Israel fails to make war against in Joshua becomes the very thing that utterly destroys them in the future. This whole narrative, it's it's really a gut check for us in regards to sin and disobedience. The question is, is what, what sin in your life are you failing to make war against? It's threatening to utterly destroy you in the future. What, what sin have you made agreements with in your life? What, what sin do you gloss over? What, what sin are you excusing instead of refusing? You see, the God who loves you deeply gave his son Jesus to pay the price for the sins that you and I wink at, that we gloss over, that we excuse, that we make gre- agreements with. At the end of the day, the same God who brought Israel up out of slavery in Egypt which is referenced in Judges chapter 2 when God comes and speaks to them. He's on the God that brought you up out of slavery. That same God that brought them out in a miraculous way, he's also provided a way of escape from slavery to our enemies, Satan, sin, the world, and the grave. Now, my, my desire and my hope is to help all of us wrap our arms around these big lofty ideas. Um, and help us to see the size of our inheritance that we have in the cross and the empty tomb. Um, that's my hope is to do that in a tangible way. It's really hard, right? Like if we could all jump on a plane right now, take a trip to Israel and see it. It, it. And if you could make the correlation between that physical inheritance and the spiritual inheritance that is given to you and I, then I think it would be easier. So I'm going to try my best as I conclude here to do that. I want you to think about the size of Israel's inheritance in the promised land. Um, my hope is it's going to illustrate to you what I'm hoping I'm trying to drive home. If you were to do a short study of um, God's covenant with Abraham, um, and you would start back in Genesis 15, and then you would make your way throughout various portions of Scripture, and you would think about and you would read the words of how God promises to give this vast amount of land to Abraham and his descendants, okay? That's the promise um, that we're watching unfold here. 
<clears throat> if you did that and you paid attention um, to what God says about the boundaries of this said promised land, um, you get a really interesting picture. It's even better than going and looking at the map on, um, on, on, online because then you just start seeing the Dorison, right? It's a map, it's a map. Yeah. If you go and, and, you, and you do the research, though, is what you find. Um, the, the land that God promised, this is really important, the land that God promised to Abraham. And I, I can tell you, I had this sermon written by Friday of last week, right? And, and I didn't have this anywhere. And as I prayed through this all week long, I'm driving to get one of my kids from school one day, and, and the Lord like spoke to me. He's like, Joe, if you could catch the massive size of the inheritance that I promised to my people for so long, if you could see how big and how massive it was and how, how much they actually grabbed hold of, then you could see a picture of my massive grace. That's, that's what I want you to see. The, 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 the land of, of, of the, uh, that the God had promised to Abraham um, is 140 miles by 400 miles. That's the size of the land that God outlines as their inheritance. It's, it's the size of the states of, of New York and Vermont put together, roughly, geographically. Um, but the size of the land that Israel actually possessed is about the size of the city of New Jersey. It's about 140 miles by 40 miles. In other words, the size of the land that God, the inheritance that God promised to his people was 56,000 square miles. 56,000, that's huge. The size of the land that they actually possessed was 10% of that because of their disobedience. So there is a fullness of God that you and I could be walking in, but we don't walk in because we fail to follow him in obedience, even though he's given his perfect son at the cross for us. He has brought us up out of Egypt, out of our sin, out of our rebellion, and yet we thumb up our noses to God and we say, no, I'm happy with 10% of your grace rather than the full load of that. Why would we ever do that? Go back to the question that God asked Israel, why? What have you done? A loving father asking that question, not an angry father. The reality of this story is the only hero, physical hero that we see in this story is Joshua. I've constantly argued against that, and you'll, you'll see that again. He is the only physical hero we see in the story, really. He's been faithful. He's been courageous. He's been obedient. He's been a leader. Um, because of his faithfulness, more importantly, because of God's faithfulness, even to the extent that he graciously gives Israel a small portion of land that they don't deserve, they didn't even deserve the 10%. Um, but Joshua's the only one that receives his full inheritance in this whole story. What does that tell you? Well, like I said a thousand times, it could tell you you should walk out here and be more like Joshua. Good luck with that moralistic message. All right, have fun. That's a highway to hell. Um, the moral of the story, in the midst of all this obedience, in the midst of all the failure of God's people, in the midst of all the rebellion and the darkness, there stands one who is faithful. In the midst of all of this, there stands one who is courageous. And there stands one who does not bend, one who does not give in to the voice of his enemies, and that one person is 
Joshua. And all along, Joshua has been faithful. He's been courageous, generous, patient with God's people. And what does he receive? A reward for his faithfulness. Now, again, like I've said, many people who would preach this text to you today, they would tell you to be more like Joshua. They would give you five things to go do, like the five stones of David, that you can throw at your problems, right? That's not the intent of the Scriptures at all. The intent of the Scriptures is to point you to Jesus, who is a perfect Joshua. Joshua was not a perfect man because he was only a man. Jesus was a perfect man. Now my assumption is, is maybe, um, maybe even better put, my hope is that as we've surveyed this portion of this text, you, you've realized maybe just how unfaithful Israel was, especially in light of the size of their inheritance. My hope is that in the midst of that, the Spirit of God has convicted you of areas of unfaithfulness in your own life, right? It could be you haven't loved your spouse well, you haven't loved your, your family well, uh, you failed at uh, maybe some, some, some way of being generous with your time, your talent, your treasure. We've heard about all these things from both Joe and Chris the last couple weeks as they faithfully preached in our midst. could be that you're finding areas there where you're being unfaithful. Um, maybe you failed in some area of addiction. Um, maybe it's just something as seemingly small as a little bit of gossip here. You think you're squeaky clean because that's not that big of a sin, right? A little bit of pride there, a little bit of envy here, a little bit of anger there, a little bit of cowardliness somewhere in your life. And you've been measuring yourself against other people rather than against the standard of perfection in Christ Jesus. Regardless of where you've been convicted of sin today, the reality is that, that without conviction, there can be no repentance. Without conviction, there can be no repentance. If you're not convicted of your sin, you ain't walking in repentance. And if you ain't walking in repentance, there can be no salvation. A salvation without repentance is not the gospel. And repentance without conviction is just worldly remorse. I'm sorry I got caught. Rather than I'm broken because I just sinned against a holy, perfect God who loves me. And maybe you've only met the moralistic Jesus, right? He's the one who pats you on the back and says, hey, you just need to live a better life than you've been living. <coughs> maybe you've only met the legalistic Jesus. He's patting you on the back and he's like, hey, you know what? You better keep your life together um, so you can be acceptable. Better, better keep that stuff together. Better keep yourself squeaky clean. Maybe you've only met the licentious Jesus. Um, he's kind of the one that comes to you and he's like, you know what? It really doesn't matter what you do, what you don't do. You choose your own path. You make your own rules. I'm not. I'm never going to judge you. I'm just going to love you. I know you've met one of those three Jesuses. The problem is that those so-called Jesuses are what the Bible calls antichrists. They're false versions of the biblical Jesus, and they've been made up by people that can't handle the real Jesus who says things like, "Pick up your cross and follow me." The real Jesus who says things like, "Anyone who hears my words and does not do them cannot be my disciple." You've got to wrestle with these things that Jesus says, right? Or, or the other real Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's not multiple roads to get to heaven and to come into God's presence. It's just me. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the biblical Jesus, when you do that study and when you meet him, he's foreshadowed in the character of Joshua. In, in the face of so much disobedience, in the face of all the rebellion among God's people, what does Joshua do? Man, he shines bright, right? He shines bright like a lamp that's not being hidden under a table. 
He shines bright like a city on a hill that lights up the pathway to following God. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to live the perfect life in our place to be then offered as a sacrificial payment for our rebellion, to then rise again on the third day, leaving the tomb empty. The, the inheritance that Christ offers us is heaven, and heaven as a broad category isn't just a place you go to. It's the presence of the perfect God. <coughs> the offer of the cross is that Jesus shares that inheritance with you and I. We are co-inheritors. There's a better word than that, but that's the way to say it. We share that with Christ. He gives that to you, though you and I don't deserve it. It's a massive promise. What a generous Savior we have in Christ. So if you've ever wondered about the size of your inheritance, how big is heaven really? How big is eternity really? How big is His grace? How big is His mercy? How vast is His love? I would say it's far bigger and far greater and far more undeserved than you and I could ever comprehend. And if you and I could grasp even 10% of that picture, imagine what that would do for your day-to-day obedience to the Lord. It's the size of your inheritance. Amen? I want to pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for our time in the Scriptures this morning. And we ask, Father, as we close, that you would do a work of change in our hearts. <coughs> Lord, I, the one thing that I do know is that I am just a man, and I don't know everything happening in every person's heart in this room, but you do. And so, Lord, we trust you to come and use uh, our time in the Scriptures and this Word to do a work of transformation, change, healing, um, encouragement, rebuke, uh, whatever it is you need to do. Lord, we pray that you would do that. Help us to uh, rest at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb, recognizing that you are our good Father and that Jesus is a much better Joshua. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.